I like watching Rory real time find out about this because I love true crime stuff. So I already know all this story, but like Rory yeah. has no idea. I love, love your reactions. <laughs> Welcome to episode 57 of the Humanist Agenda podcast. My name is Kenny. I'm Sherry. And I'm Rory. So, our last episode was ha- the Halloween episode. Did everyone go get some candy? <laughs> I definitely did. I, ma- I, made a, I made a promise to avoid candy in the, la- in the last episode. And I oh. did, successfully. Oh, good for you. I bought more candy. <laughs> so I made up for your lack of candy. Wait, uh, before Halloween or after? Oh, uh, I bought some today, so both. <laughs> really? It's <laughs> a bit of yeah. a candy hangover. <laughs> yeah. I don't know there's still candy out there. I, I went shopping today and all I saw was Christmas. Christmas uh, already. There's literally like Christmas candies and stuff like that everywhere. Oh, you're not looking Superstore. hard enough. I just went to Superstore today and they had like a small tower of stuff. And it really was only like $2 off. But I was like, well, I'm out of it. I have to get a little bit more. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's on sale. So why not? <laughs> Stores are, are definitely, the store I'm at is still definitely trying to push the Halloween candy. And so I don't know what our discounts are like, but uh, we're still moving it out. I should go there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. In terms of my Halloween, I purposefully bought full-size chocolate bars in anticipation that any child that happened to knock on my door would be greatly rewarded for trick-or-treating here. But uh, none of them showed up, so now I have... uh, (laughs) (laughs) What? Really? No. Zero trick-or-treaters. I'm in an apartment keep in mind so oh the the one year i did have other residents of the apartment coming around with their children and they were in adorable costumes and ever since i've had to have some candy on hand in case but no i didn't know apartments were a thing like for trick-or-treating i i don't know if this is a thing they would be as much a thing for obviously not people outside since it's a locked you know lobby and everything but it didn't seem weird to me to have, you know, residents with children come around with their with their kids. I mean, when you think about it, it's a very efficient means of trick-or-treating because you've got so many residents in such a small area that, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, it, it seems smart to me. Or was this an ex- was this an excuse for you just to get full-size chocolate bars? No, it, it totally... <laughs> there's a part of me that suspected that I would see no trick-or-treaters. And so I bought the kind of chocolate bars that I liked, for sure. But uh, but I would have been thrilled to, to get trick-or-treaters. And that's who I was buying it for. And Rory knew that I couldn't get into his building to <laughs> knock on his door. So <laughs> Were you dressed up, Sherry? If I you're was in dressed costume, up, yeah. I, I totally would have given you a candy. <laughs> Um, any apartment building I've I've lived in, we've had like candy in in the lobby. So some people contributed to candy in the lobby, and then the building manager handed it out. But yeah, uh, I've never had anyone when I was in an apartment knock on my door. I'm not sure. Same here, I've never had anyone knock on my door when I was living in an apartment. So really, this seems weird. Mm-hmm. I'm really not sure what would be the more 
you know, COVID conscious way to do it, whether to have a community bowl out in the lobby or to go door to door. I'm not sure what's the the better approach. Probably the community bowl. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or just keep the children away. <laughs> They're just sticky and no Halloween for you, children. <laughs> Rory and I'm the, I... Grin- I'm the Grinch of Halloween, <laughs> apparently. Rory and I went with a friend to a haunted house. That was a lot of fun. That's how we celebrated Halloween this year. We celebrate every year that way. It was I always very make sure cool. we get tickets. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They did a really good job this year. They. They surprised me with how much they interacted with their audience. I did not like that. <laughs> As opposed to the previous year where... Did, did they get a little too close? For you me, might say, I yeah. told one, please stay six feet away. <laughs> <laughs> I know this is shattering the immersion here, but let's just keep the distance going. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was not a fan of that one who came really close to me, but um, yeah... Yeah, they came a little bit closer than I expected, but it was okay. We were outdoors, so mm-hmm. it's okay, I guess. It it reminded me of how much I liked when they did interact like that with their audience, but in the back of my mind, I'm same as you, Sherry. I was thinking like, oh, really? Oh, we're at this point already where we're, uh, <laughs> we're just throwing COVID procedure out the window, are we? Well, all right. The pandemic is over? What? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it was fun was fun good good and looks like none of you are sick so everything went well (laughs) yep we're all good well i guess uh since halloween is over we still want to talk about something more dark (laughs) i know i feel like this should have been our spooky episode and i don't know why we didn't do that (laughs) timing didn't work that's okay that's okay so we're going to be talking about Solving some murders with some advances in genetic uh, technology. So uh, maybe, Rory, you want to kind of go give us a little bit of overview? Absolutely. I've got you guys on this one. I had a, a background in criminology. I'm not sure if, uh, if I've told you or our listeners that. yet. Yeah, my whole undergrad. I, w- I thought I was going to be the world's greatest detective all the way until I finished my undergrad and realized, you know, I've wasted four years of my life. Time to jump into something more productive. I'm just kidding. Criminology so what did is... you jump into? You did a master's <laughs> and uh, you're in your PhD? <laughs> Criminology is wonderful. I'm not. It was a, a four years well spent. Forget everything I just said. <laughs> but that said, it, it wasn't unfamiliar territory for me to uh, to dive into a little bit of history of profiling techniques specifically related to genes and DNA profiling. So, gather round. The story of DNA profiling starts back in the year 1985 in Great Britain. Dr. Alec Jeffries developed the first DNA fingerprint at the Lister Institute of Leicester University. And at the time, Dr. Jeffries was not looking to revolutionize forensic science. He was simply investigating a group of genes that produce myoglobin protein which carries oxygen and muscle tissue. While researching this topic, however, Jeffries realized that he had accidentally found a technique that could be used to establish a unique DNA identity from DNA samples. I'm just going to have to give you a layman's overview here because despite my criminology background, I'm not a forensic scientist by any stretch. But uh, it seems that in DNA strands, there are areas that are called hypervariable stretches, 
which I would guess means that they differ a lot from person to person. And when scientists probe these hypervariable regions, they can find tags because these regions are inherited and half the hypervariable region is determined by each parent making up the complete whole. And the moral of the story being that uh, with this information, a scientist can determine who you're related to. So Dr. Jeffries was actually set to give a public lecture on these findings, but he had to miss it due to his daughter suffering a playground accident. She badly injured her face and she had to be taken to the hospital. This actually turned out to be fortunate in a way for him because uh, the Lister Institute was able to patent the technology and technique, which they wouldn't have been able to do because British law says that you can't patent any invention that you give a public mention to. So if he'd gone through with this lecture, there would be no patent on DNA profiling technology. Crazy, what does that huh? mean then for like the world? So there's if there was no patent on it, what would that mean? It'd just be like public use. It'd be kind of like um, penicillin. That's public, right? Where the doctor who created it didn't market it for a profit. He just publicly put the technology out there and so anybody can produce variants of penicillin but that so that was a good example of how you know not having a patent on something you know because otherwise companies can you know jack the price up on right penicillin because, because they own it but because there's no or because there is a patent on dna isn't that a bad thing in a way, this wouldn't be this wouldn't be a patent on DNA, but it's the technology of yeah um, to profile sequencing it and, and profile yeah. yeah the techniques and technology that's what's patented. Obviously, you can't DNA patent a DNA a strand of DNA. Mm-hmm. But you know, it, it's open for debate whether patents are a good or bad thing. I guess in part depends on how big of a capitalist you are. Whether you think that somebody should be able to profit from their intellectual property, in this case, DNA profiling. But moving on, the Lister Institute sold the rights to the technique to a large British pharmaceutical company called ICI. ICI created a sub-company to carry out genetic fingerprinting for paying customers and called it Cellmark Diagnostics. So fast forward two years and moving from Great Britain over to the United States, DNA profiling became the domain of two private companies, Life Codes Corporation of Valhalla, New York, and Cellmark Diagnostics again, but set up in Germantown, Maryland. The top scientists from these companies told courts of the technique's high validity and reliability, and for a short, peaceful period, DNA profiling had high credibility. This turned out to be short-lived. In 1989, there was a double murder of a pregnant woman and her two-year-old child in New York City. The case saw the defense lawyers Barry Sheck and Paul Neufeld form the first significant challenge to the credibility and trustworthiness of DNA fingerprinting. They managed to show that, at the time, DNA fingerprinting was extremely dependent on subjective decisions, thus not meeting the objective standards of science. The article doesn't say exactly how this was proven, but I would guess if they're saying that it was dependent on subjective decisions, they must have shown that there was a a real problem in replicating results from one scientist to another. That would be how you show that there is no true objective standard. Anyway, this case was dubbed the Castro case 
after the Castro case, there was a period of scientific disputes called the DNA Wars, where lawyers and their experts clashed in courtrooms and science labs to try to show their methods were the most credible and trustworthy. This continued until the National Academy of Science eventually stepped up and settled the problems with DNA profiling. They had the most credible and trustworthy scientists on their payroll, and so the National Research Council laid out the issues as follows. Chain of custody, laboratory proficiency, quality assurance, training of personnel. And they proposed standards for each of these in April of 1992, as well as proposed a solution to correctly calculating random match probability. Their standards unfortunately caused an outcry with the FBI and other scientists who weren't included on the committee and forced a second committee to convene in 1994. 1994 is also notable as the year that O.J. Simpson went on trial for the murder of his former wife and friend. And this caused a prominent or caused the prominent opposing factions of the DNA wars to declare in articles published in Nature magazine that the DNA wars are over. Essentially, they didn't want uh, O.J. Simpson's defense lawyer to be able to claim that there was no consensus in the scientific community over DNA profiling, which would have made DNA evidence all inadmissible. So, that in mind, the second NRC committee ultimately laid out in meticulous detail the mathematical grounding for the calculation of random match probabilities. And there's a whole sub-literature on how much of a role the FBI played in strong-arming the stabilization and standardization of DNA profiling in the U.S. They silenced certain scientists and promoted the views of others. It's a really interesting thing to look at in terms of sociological analysis of power dynamics, but I digress. We'll move on. Uh, the FBI also established the Technical Working Group on DNA Methods, whose purpose was to learn how to produce DNA profiles and how to interpret them. This group produced a set of informal standards for interpretation, as well as formal standards for quality assurance. Their standards came to legislation in the 1994 DNA Identification Act. The FBI wanted every crime laboratory in the United States and Canada to perform DNA profiling in the same way. So they all have to use the same protocols, the same chemical reagents, the same probes, and analyze the same sites along the DNA molecule. Standardization. And the big payoff to all this standardization and stabilization was CODIS, the Combined DNA Indexing System, a databank to store the DNA profiles of all convicted felons in the U.S. and Canada. But on the private industry side, there are now a number of DNA ancestry companies some of the prominent ones include 23andMe, Ancestry.com, GEDmatch uh, or GEDmatch, as well as one that I didn't know about before talking with my co-podcasters called Family Tree DNA. Mm-hmm. Sherry, maybe you can tell us a bit more about that one. Well, I just know about Family uh, Tree DNA based on, you know, some of the issues that came up over um, working with the FBI uh, so family tree DNA is, is sort of like the GED match in that it's, uh, sort of a public service where you can upload your DNA. So you, you go through like 23andMe to get your DNA results and whatever, and then you upload them so that you can find your family members and ancestry and things like that. So it's like an ancestry tree kind of matching thing. Um, and, uh, so after they started 
to work with the FBI, they quietly changed their terms of service uh, and didn't tell their customers uh, so that they could work with the FBI. Um, and so now you can opt out of law enforcement searches, but you have to like opt out of it now. Um, but uh, users started finding distant matches that seemed to come from crime scene DNA, you know, based on looking at the username or profile photo or contact information within that um, that connection. So, for example, there was a profile that showed up with the description rootless hair from unknown victim. Uh, and so the case turned out to come from, it turned out to come from, uh, Barbara Ray Ventner, uh, the genealogist, uh, sorry, genealogist known for helping investigators on the Golden State killer case. Um, but they were like connecting with the victim. Um, and, and so they were a little bit, uh, upset about this, um, as you know, somebody would be if they, they suddenly matched with, you know, a hair yeah. from a victim. <laughs> um, and so they started making profiles a little bit more discreet after that. Um, but I did learn that law enforcement can only upload DNA from a murder or a sexual assault. So you have to, it has to be one of those two crimes. You can't just upload DNA from you know, uh, theft or something like that. Yeah. And when they made this uh, policy, um, uh, previously GEDmatch uh, or GEDmatch, uh, they by default allowed their the profiles in the database to actually be used by law enforcement if it wasn't, you know, a murder or a sexual assault. Um, but they had to turn that off. They actually uh, had to turn off that, uh, function that default function and restart everyone to re-opt into police searches. And the reason for that was because there was actually a case in Utah when a woman uh, was assaulted uh, at a church and the um, the suspect got away, but the police convinced Jetmatch that this person, the suspect was going to re-offend. The suspect was going to find someone else and uh, assault them or potentially kill them. So Jetmatch actually allowed the police to uh, use their database and caught the suspect. However, this was a big problem because, uh, as you uh, mentioned, the policy has always been only sexual assault victims or uh, murder victims. This victim at, in Utah was not sexually assaulted and was not murdered. Mm. So uh, they had to turn off, essentially reset uh, their feature and um, uh, make people kind of re-opt into uh, the police database. Um, can, can you guys guess how many, from a percentage standpoint, of new users kind of re-opted to allow law enforcement? Hmm. Well, I think the heart of this is how many people started to feel that their privacy was was taking a big hit or violation with this? I'm going to say that 60% opted back in. I'm going to say that they all opted back in because they just got an email that was like, we're updating our terms of service. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone ignored it. <laughs> 
uh, actually, seventy-three uh, percent of people re-opted uh, in. So, uh, not not bad. But I can also see people probably just ignored it. <laughs> so, I love the yes. explanation, Sherry. That's wonderful. <laughs> I ignore all those emails. <laughs> Who yeah. knows what the ramifications are of all those emails that I've ignored? <laughs> exactly. And uh, well, I'll hit on maybe um, a topic of uh, CODIS uh, that you mentioned, Rory. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the law enforcement database of uh, DNA profiles of uh, criminals, essentially. Um, when we look at the composition of that database, I don't think it would be a surprise to all of us that the bulk of it is African-Americans. Oh, dear. So only uh, the database comprised of maybe 2% of the white population. Uh, across, you know, North America. So very few uh, representation from Caucasians. But uh, this, to me, kind of brings into the question, uh, there there was a lot of resistance to um, having law enforcement access, like JetMatch and things like that. And I'm wondering why, why a lot of people who are in that database uh, maybe felt like they didn't want to be Access by law enforcement. Mm-hmm. I, I couldn't help but think the JedMatch database composed of over 75% Caucasians because <laughs> Caucasians tend to want to find their ancestry for some reason versus <laughs> every other population. And I just feel, I just wonder, it just feels like, I don't know if this hesitation is truly because, you know, people, uh, I'm wondering whether this hesitation is also, you know, because they don't want to be found out. <laughs> Given the fact that the you know, law enforcement have very little visibility into uh, potential crimes from uh, the Caucasian population. <laughs> I've thought about this before, too. The whole argument of, well, why don't you want your DNA to be available? I mean, it'll help police prevent crimes and it'll rule you out as a suspect, potentially. Mm-hmm. But uh, it kind of taps into the same idea of, well, if we're going to go down that road, why don't we have cameras in every private residence? Why don't we have cameras mm-hmm. everywhere? That will completely, you know, cause us to be able to identify every single criminal who commits a crime accurately if we just have full visibility at all times. But I think there might be some fear around being falsely accused as well, like through an accidental you know, issue in the DNA um, cause I was reading through like why this is so controversial. Um, cause I couldn't really figure out, cause for me, it's not very controversial. And you've heard me say before, like with, um, the COVID vaccine that if there's a microchip in there, I don't care. Cause I'm not doing anything that's really interesting at all. And so I would We're upload... already being tracked on <laughs> yeah. our cell phones. Yeah. So I would upload my DNA. I wouldn't really care that much. Um, but there was a guy in the States called Mike Usri, uh, and he was visiting his parents when he got a phone call from the police, and they said uh, they wanted to check his car because it matched the description of a car that was involved in a hit and run. So he got in there, and then the police said, um, oh, well, that's not all we want to talk about. Um, and that ended up uh, you know, questioning him about um, a young woman named Angie Dodge, um, who had been raped and murdered in Idaho in 1996. Um, and so they they had done this DNA matching um, and come up with 
some connection to his DNA. Um, and so he had traveled to D, uh, to Idaho a couple times around the time of the girl's death. So so there was that connection there. It once was for a Mormon mission trip and once was for a ski vacation. Um, but they were really interested in his dad's DNA. So at the time, his dad had been convinced to provide a DNA sample, um, you know, 16 years prior uh, to this database uh, as part of a geneal- genealogy project. Um, and the participation was encouraged by the Mormon church. Uh, so he gave up his DNA um, and it was a public database. But um, it only, but at the time, like the DNA sequencing um, was limited. So it only provided um, profiles that can trace the paternal or maternal heritage. So the Y chromosomes and the um, mitochondrial DNA. Um, And so when the police ran that DNA uh, from the crime scene, they found a close match with the father, uh, but they eliminated the father because he was too old. Um, And so the police interrogated this guy, this young guy, because he was a filmmaker and one of his films was about a rape and murder of a young girl uh, so there was like some weird things that lined up there. Um, and, and so they had a warrant there for a DNA swab. So they swabbed his DNA. And then like a month later, he got a call that said it didn't match. But in that month, he said he was pretty distraught that he was going to be falsely accused and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, things like that. So, so there might be a concern that there's, you know, some sort of mistake in the lab or, or something like that. Yeah, I, I'm not sure what recourse you would have if if you get a false positive. Can you be like, I demand a second test or a third test? And yeah, well, I mean, the the DNA uh, profiling it's all based on probabilities. Like they look at, uh, uh, you know, DNA is made up of four letters. They it's it's all based on probabilities in terms of uh, the DNA match uh, in any of the analysis. It, it can never say a hundred percent. It's all about, you know, they'll say, you know, 99, 97% matches, things like that. But uh, at a certain point, when uh, we all have 23 chromosomes, uh, it will basically find all these long uh, sequences of DNA that are uh, repeating, usually. Mm -hmm. And the more repeats means you're more closely related. Uh, It's... It's really hard to uh, uh, find, you know, one individual and then a random other individual that have close enough of a, a match to kind of make a mistake. So uh, that that's I think DNA is one of those technologies where you're pretty certain once you're in the ninety percent range that you know you're <laughs> you're you're gonna you're, uh, you're gonna get a, a match. So, um, but I totally understand kind of this fear that you know you could be falsely accused and uh, we all know uh, there's many examples of people who have been falsely accused and it has kind of ruined their lives because people just automatically assume Mm -hmm. uh, um, that you are a criminal so um, there's definitely that fear and I think it's really up to uh, law enforcement to use DNA not as a a single source of evidence to prove guilt. Uh, It's usually, and I'm sure in courts, 
every lawyer is going to insist that there's got to be multiple yeah co- corroborate uh, multiple pieces of evidence that can point this person to uh, the crime. It can't solely be based on DNA. Yeah. I, I'm pretty sure that's true. I, I don't think any you know enforcement officers coming in there with just a swab and saying, well, we're done here, everyone. We've <laughs> yeah. got two swabs, yeah. one from the scene, one from this guy's car handle, and it's over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because we leave our DNA everywhere. <laughs> any Anything we touch, <laughs> I mean, our DNA is just everywhere. So. Mm-hmm. There was another case that I read about, really, like, quick case about – uh, in Germany, where they thought that the DNA evidence um, matched a like specific ethnic minority, uh, and then law enforcement went out and started harassing that like population of people, mm. um, and so, but it found they found out later that the sample had been contaminated. Um, so there's a fear of you know contamination of samples and. And like, yeah, especially when it comes to ethnic minorities and and how they are already targeted by police. So, um, you know, it's it's it puts a lot of responsibility on the police to be like, you know, you can't use this irresponsibly, like you said, Kenny. Brings up another good point too. Like, even if the the actual profiling techniques are are really really accurate when used responsibly there's still that human subjective factor of somebody handling it and somebody can maybe purposefully taint or misuse it to create a false positive that, you know, like you said, Kenny, that's why we need all that extra corroborating evidence so that we're not over-relying on the DNA. Something I was uh, was going to get you guys' opinion on, now seems as good a time as I need to circle back for them, to it. What did you think about... Uh, when I was talking about how the methods came to be standardized and how much, I don't want to say strong arming, but uh, how much it was just like silencing certain members of the community and promoting others in order to come up with a, a standard method. Do you think that's good practice or do you think there's problems with that? I mean, to me, when I was listening to you say that ultimately as an outcome, we want a standard mm-hmm. anyways, right? I mean, there's what, what would law enforcement want to do? They want to be able to go into court, not have their processes questioned or mm-hmm. a chain of custody questioned. So they want to have complete evidence to uh, put someone uh, at a scene and have them convicted. So I can see what the incentive is to, uh, you know, they need a standard. They need to push for a standard. Um, I'm not sure how they came to the conclusion of, you know, one uh, method versus another and rallying, you know, the Mm -hmm. right scientists to uh, rally around the right um, standard. Um, So I don't know. For me, I'll... I feel like I need to know a little bit more about the history of how, you know, what were the alternative standards yeah. and and why, you know, why did the FBI or law enforcement strong arm people into picking a particular standard or not? They also follow like a set of rule rules in a rule book, right? So for everything they do, all police procedures have this rule book and you can throw out evidence if they don't, you know, get the right subpoena or the right warrant and mm-hmm. and things like that. So um, 
for the FBI and for the police, for for them strong arming, it could have been because like, hey, we need to make sure we have a rule book on this uh, so that we know how to proceed because that's how they they form all of their procedures. And so it might be, you know, just their their efforts to to form that. Yeah, I I get that. But I'm hearing a little bit of almost like end justifies the means in this rationale. Like the end is we want standardization. And so we're willing to accept the means of, you know, leaving a bunch of these alternatives that, like you say, Kenny, we don't know how good they were, what their merits were. We're willing to leave all of them on the cutting room floor because we need to elevate one standard so that we can use it legally or in the courtroom, I mean. Do you think that leaves room, though, for other standards who feel like they are not, or feel like they are more effective, to n- like not prove their their worth in all well, of this. This is the thing, and kind of what I was trying to get at is, I don't know how much room there is once something is being used as a legal standard to to prove guilt or innocence in a courtroom. I'm not sure how malleable it is anymore for new science to come in and say, well, we've got a better way of doing this now. We need you to, to change practice and see it this way. This way was actually better all along, but you guys pushed for that way. Or whether that compromises a bunch of past cases where they've used the, the older, now proven less effective method. I, I just worry a little bit that it's, it's forcing a rigidness onto a scientific technique that could continue to evolve and get better. Yeah. Uh- I think even in the law enforcement world, when it comes to like forensic science, if it ain't broke, don't <laughs> try to fix it. <laughs> because I, I think that it presents so much risk for law enforcement, right? If you have a new method, a new process, you're just giving a new opportunity for a lawyer to pick it yeah. apart. And the moment you find a flaw, your case could be killed. Yeah, and I get that. There's a real risk, maybe too big of a risk, of, of letting guilty parties legal loophole their way out of uh, a conviction because, because we're trying to play with the science and, and change it. But that's why uh, when there are new cases, cases that are cold and haven't been solved, but if a new scientific method can be applied or a new process can be applied to solve it, that gives credibility because now you're expanding the science to actually capture new mm-hmm. uh, uh, opportunities in uh, by solving you know cold cases that aren't able to be solved with today's technology or process. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Which I guess that potentially brings to, <laughs> up the example of the Golden State Killer, which uh, which was solved. Uh, through the use of a new method of investigation. Uh, we all know, you know, genetic profiling has existed for several years now. Um, and the Golden State Killer, they have a DNA profile of the killer, but they were never able to identify a suspect. The suspect basically was free in the world for over about like 40 years never roaming around never put his dna all, into ancestry.com ex- exactly <laughs> he i mean he knew he was smart um and uh it took it was 40 years of investigation and they through traditional methods 
using DNA profiling, using fingerprints, using, you know, uh, whatever method they have, and they weren't able to catch him. And through a new uh, process of genetic genealogy, it took a team of people four months to catch him. <laughs> so, it, it, so I'll maybe go through uh, why this case was so difficult to solve. Uh, and kind of how he was eventually caught. The Golden State Killer, He there were several names for uh, this killer. Uh, he was also known as the East Area Rapist and the uh, uh, Visalia Ransacker. The reason why he had all these different names was because he targeted different parts of California during different periods of time. So the police force um, had different names for uh, this criminal he originally started in as the Visalia Ransacker in the early 70s, where he was uh, responsible for over 100 kind of uh, break and enters. Uh, he just uh, stole stuff, things like that. Eventually, he uh, was uh, he fired a gun at a police officer who kind of uh, showed up at the scene. Um, and after that, all the break-ins stopped. Hmm. So clearly you can see he got, had an encounter with a police officer and then he stopped. Uh, what was uh, even more interesting is the uh, Golden State Killer was a police officer and he was assigned to the exact case no of way. the Vicelia Ransacker. He was assigned so, to his own case? He was a, he w- he was one of the police officers oh uh, ass- uh, assigned to the task force of trying to find this uh, person. So, with public tax dollars, he was able to learn how to become a better criminal <laughs> by studying how the police were actually investigating his own crime. <laughs> so, I like watching Rory real time. <laughs> find out about this because i love true crime stuff so i already know all this story but like rory has no idea i love love your reactions yeah Yeah. so uh after visilia things start to escalate uh this is when he uh got the name the east area rapist uh so from uh burglaries he escalated now to raping uh women and so this is the mid-70s. He would usually attack either females that are alone. And at a certain point, uh, there were reports that the, the East Area rapists would only attack women, you know, uh, never when a male was present. When he, he learned that, he began attacking women with males present. Oh, wow. <laughs> so so it's he, like it, my pride um, has been offended in my evil criminal ways. Yeah. He, um, and one of the reasons why initially no one made a connection between uh, the Visalia ransacker and the Isera rapist was also because he became quite smart in terms of altering his appearance as well. Mm. So the, the Visalia ransacker, uh, he was described as a little bit... Um, more chubbier, you know, but uh, the East Area Rapist was described as a very athletic person, very fit. So he made the effort of getting very fit (laughs) to make sure he uh, altered his appearance um, so that (laughs) there wouldn't be a connection between the crimes. 
So when there was a instance where there was both male and female uh, at a house that he would uh, uh, break into, uh, he would uh, usually wake them up. He would be wearing a mask. He would be shining a flashlight uh, in their face so that they couldn't really see him well. He'd be speaking through clenched teeth so that they it, it would make them uh, make it hard for them to recognize his voice. Um, he would make the female tie the male up. Uh, then he would also place uh, things like d- dishes on top of the male as a alarm system to make sure the male doesn't get up mm-hmm. because uh, basically he would threaten them if uh, if he heard the dishes break or kind of fall off uh he would kill everyone um so he did this and continued uh to do this until he eventually uh ended up killing two people in a a confrontation um and after that he did not return back to that area Uh, what was interesting to note is in uh, this happened in sacramento and this area where um, the, the rapes were happening and the sexual assaults were happening, um, he grew up in this area. So he was very familiar with uh, the Sacramento neighborhood. Oh. Um, so after this incident, he decides to change things up again. He would now go to Modesto and Davis, which is you know two hours away, and he would switch back and forth between cities. Again, trying to throw off law enforcement. However, he had he always had a similar mo. So uh, where he it was a very similar process of how he would find uh, get his victims to cooperate with them. Um, so uh, it wasn't too difficult to kind of link uh, some of these crimes. Uh, eventually, I mean, it, it took a while for people to kind of uh, link it. Um, but now he's learning even more. He's uh, he's uh, when he has his victims, he would actually start feeding his victims wrong information about him. He would be uh, saying things like, oh, you know, uh, I, he would admit to killing uh, victims in different cities that he's never been to. Mm. He would tell them, oh, you know, I, I was in the army, uh, which he wasn't. <laughs> and so he would be feeding all this uh, incorrect information to his victims, knowing that his victims would talk to the police to try to throw the police off. And he would also report, uh, the victims would also report that uh, one thing he would often say when he was committing the assaults was he would always uh, repeat, I hate you, Bonnie. So clearly there's someone in his life named Bonnie, um, which was a a clue, uh, but uh, law enforcement weren't able to kind of uh, uh, figure out what that connection was. Later on, uh, he was uh, arrested for shoplifting and was forced out of the police force. So, okay, no longer a police officer. But then he still... uh, his new attacks now continue to really escalate, where the attacks were essentially led to murder, mm-hmm. uh, where uh, he would commit the assault, but he would uh, bludgeon his victims uh, to death. But he began; he was leaving lots and lots of DNA in at the crime scene. So essentially, now we're in the eighties. 
He's still continuing the crimes. He's leaving lots of DNA. And the police department are now collecting and saving DNA. Uh, so they're uh, starting to uh, collect um, uh, samples, storing them. But of course, the technology doesn't exist right now to do any profiling. But the most, most important thing is uh, the DNA has been left. Mm-hmm. And the last attack was in 1986. And people are... are um, postulating that the reason why now the attacks have suddenly stopped is because in 1986, that was the first time DNA was used to convict a criminal. And he has realized that he has left this DNA in all of his crime scenes <laughs> and has decided to stop. So now we fast forward uh, to the 1990s where there's a cold case investigator. He's found the the sexual assault rape kits and has been kind of spending the next few years collecting all of the various kits, doing all the profiling and discovering that, hey, you know, we can link multiple link uh, multiple crimes in different places in California to the same killer. <laughs> so now this is where they were able to link uh, the East Area Rapist, uh, with his uh, uh, other attacks. Um, uh, the other name he got from another area of California was the original Night Stalker. Mm. So they were able to link all these together. And it ended up, you know, he has committed over 50 rapes, 12 murders. So they knew they had a serial, serial killer. But the only problem is, even though they had his DNA profile, none of the database had any hits. CODIS didn't report anything. They, they ran his DNA through CODIS in the 2000s. But they because they were able to link all these together, they made it public that, hey, you know, based, due to DNA, we've been able to link all these cases together. But they knew he was alive. Hmm. And they knew he was alive because the day they announced that they were able to link all these crimes together through the DNA, one of the victims got a call from the Golden State Killer, uh, reminding her of uh, their activities. So uh, they knew he was definitely alive, and they could still continue to find him. Why would he do that? I... <laughs> because he is a sociopath. I don't know. <laughs> He's, uh, they, they, there are many other... Um, well, I'll, I'll go on... Uh, uh, on how they found him and kind of the other evidence that kind of point to him as well. So when it came to tracking down suspects, the lead investigator, uh, his name is Paul Holes. He had a suspect in mind, you know, in the two thousands, he had a suspect in mind that was, he was tracking for uh, two years. You know, this person was, in the cities that where these crimes were uh, located, and uh, the suspect had disappeared in 2004, um, but it, it turned out that he essentially was just became homeless and assumed his uh, brother's identity. But that he felt very strong, like, "Oh, I got him!" So they've tested his DNA, no match. Mm. So uh, he had another prime uh, suspect uh, that he was reviewing evidence 
and managed to secure his DNA. And again, no match. And for him, this was a turning point for him because he realized that he was looking at the evidence and trying to fit all the evidence to the suspect. And uh, from there, he managed to hear about a case of using genetic genealogy to actually identify um, uh, people. And he decided, hey, maybe we can use this to see if we can find the Golden State Killer. So genetic genealogy is not just about looking at the DNA profile, but is to actually take that DNA profile and build a family tree. Mm. And it was building the family tree that eventually led to catching the Golden State Killer. So um, what they did was they spent four months building up the family tree, uh, and it's pretty challenging because when you, you start building out a family tree, I mean, it, your fam- this family tree could consist of thousands of people. So they were they built out his family tree, and what they were able to find based on this uh, one day ran uh, the Golden State Killer's DNA in Judd Match, uh, they were able to find some third cousins. Uh, so based on that, they were they kind of narrowed uh, thousands of potential candidates down to five potential candidates. And how 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 were you able to do that? I mean, it's not just genes that you're using as evidence. You know the gender of your suspect. You know the age. Mm-hmm. So obviously, people that have died, people that are too old, too young, you can eliminate. And you also have the location. Mm-hmm. He was definitely in the California area. So based on uh, all that data, they were able to narrow down thousands of people in this family tree to there are only five people in this family tree that could be a match. So uh, through further investigation, uh, they investigated all five people. One of them turned out to be interesting. It was a police officer. He's been he's moved around in California in those locations uh, that uh, where the crimes have occurred. They called up they also discovered that he was a police officer, but he was fired. So mm-hmm. they decided to call up his old supervisor who fired uh, this officer. And the the police chief mentioned that, yes, he remembers him because uh, when he got fired, the next night, his daughter came to him saying there was a man shining a flashlight in her window. And he was certain it was this uh this guy and this guy's uh name is Joe Joseph Delan- uh, Delangelo they did some further investigations and found out that uh Joseph Delangelo was engaged to a woman named Bonnie mm-hmm. and and she had broken off the relationship because Delangelo had threatened her with a gun so all the pieces are coming together they decide to follow him they got two samples of DNA, one from his car, one from his trash. They were a perfect match. And that is how they were able to catch this elusive <laughs> Golden State Killer. I just, I can't believe that the 
inciting incident to all this is is Bonnie broke this sociopath's heart and then Mm, hang on oh, there. No. Let's not say that. <laughs> I, I, no, no, I'm not coming I, at this from a sympathetic yeah. <laughs> point of view at all. I'm just saying, like... <sighs> but I, I don't think we can blame her. I think he no, has no, it no, in no, him. No. Okay. I mean, yeah. if, I think he's just crazy. If I were her, <laughs> I'd be yeah. out the door, too. I'm just saying that that's all it took to set this person off, is just one failed relationship, and and down murder row he goes. Well, no, it definitely wasn't just her, but, uh, but I mean, it's, it's just one of those, all the pieces came together, right? Once, uh, once they were able to map out the family tree, they were able to zero in on the suspect and all the right evidence pointed to Joseph D'Angelo. 40 years in the making. Yeah, uh, I, I think this was, this was the case that really kicked everything off because this was the first case that was uh, solved by genetic genealogy. It was really prominent. And now when you actually, even if you go onto uh, Google uh, News and actually search in the news, the keyword genetic genealogy, almost every week there's a brand new case that's being solved through genetic genealogy. So um, I just quickly did a search like last night and then just this week they solved a case of a unidentified hitchhiker that they found a body. Uh, it was a 15-year-old body. They had no idea who he, who he was. Uh, and it took, I think this happened in uh, the 70s. So again, you know, over uh, 40 years, um, they were able to identify <laughs> This person uh, who apparently had, like just ran away and uh, was considered missing. So they've been uh, just using genetic genealogy, been almost every week, just solving new uh, cold cases. And uh, really, it's a pretty impressive technology that's really going to shrink down the number of kind of unsolved mysteries and unsolved cases. I've got a couple extra cases to add on. I love I love the Golden State Killer story. Like that one has fascinated me for a long time. Um, but in Canada, we have you know a rich history of of serial killers and murders and things like that. Um, Especially London, yeah. Ontario. London was in the sixties and seventies the serial killer capital of the world. So per capita, we had the most uh, serial murders hmm. or serial killers or something like that. But it's very interesting. And yeah. I informed Rory of this last time, you know, when we were off air, when we were talking about this topic as, and he was astonished. <laughs> I had no idea I lived in such a dangerous place. Had I lived here <laughs> X number of years ago. <laughs> this is why kids don't go into apartments for trick and treating. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's all coming together. <laughs> Um, so I've got a couple, uh, that I thought were sort of noteworthy. Um, I'll end on a high-ish note. I don't know if there's a way that I can end on a high note in this, but our first one, um, is Christine Jessup. Um, been in the news, uh, you know, rather recently, I would say, but, um, this is a case from 1984, um, on October 23rd a nine-year-old named Christine Jessup goes missing. Um, And so they searched for months and they finally found her remains on New Year's Eve in Durham. So Durham, Ontario. Um, The father was in jail 
and the family was going to visit him on October 23rd, uh, and they left Christine behind at home. Um, and so Christine had plans to meet up with a friend that night, uh, but she never showed up, uh, and she was last seen buying a pack of gum at a convenience store. Um, and so they couldn't really figure out who had done it, but then they charged the neighbor, uh, Guy Paul Morin, with the murder. Um, they had to exonerate him in 1995, so he did serve some time, um, based on DNA testing advancements. So they, they tested some DNA, found out it wasn't him. He had served like 18 months in prison and he got exonerated, uh, because the DNA didn't match. And so this was a cold case for, uh, a long time until uh, they actually did some of this genealogical testing for DNA. Um, and they found out uh, that uh, Calvin, a man named Calvin Hoover, uh, was the murderer. And unfortunately, Calvin Hoover died in 2015 after committing suicide. So they couldn't, um, they couldn't convict him at all. Um, but... Uh, the reason they were connected was um, Calvin uh, sort of knew the family uh, through work. So um, Calvin and Christine's father worked together. Um, their children played together. So Calvin was sort of intimately involved with this family. Um, and Calvin's ex-wife spoke in an interview um, about Calvin um, and the ex-wife used to babysit Christine. So there's all these ties that are starting to, to form once they've built up this genealogical DNA sort of profile. Um, and so Calvin's wife thought that he was at work on the night that Christine went missing. So he had some sort of alibi. Um, and uh, Calvin actually went with his wife on these organized searches for Christine's body. Um, he went to the wake. He went to, um, you know, Christine's grave uh, with his wife years after um, the body was found. Uh, so, you know, he was very involved with, you know, the search and and the grieving process and all of this. Um, but their marriage became difficult uh, he became very moody and grumpy, and they divorced in 1997. Um, uh, I don't know if significantly, but, you know, 1995 was when the DNA testing exonerated Guy Paul Morin, and so she kind of links it back to that. Um, and, uh, you know, he was later convicted of drunk driving, diagnosed with manic depressive and involved with drugs, so that's probably not great for his, you know, motive for killing as well. But, um, yeah, so this was a case that was solved, uh, right nearby. Um, and it's, you know, even though this guy killed himself, he committed suicide, they're able to still find out that it was him. So I think that's pretty, pretty interesting. Yeah. There's also a London connection here because all the, uh, all the court cases, occurred in London. Mm -hmm. It was like one of London's biggest uh, trials and one of the most expensive trials as well. It cost taxpayers over a million, $11 million. Yeah. Personal connection too. I've actually met Guy Paul Moran. He did a guest lecture for our criminology class in fourth year. Oh, wow. 
Oh, that's cool. Sorry, I pronounced his name wrong. It's Guy, that, not Guy. That's all right. I, it's a French name, and I, I should have made that connection. <laughs> okay, interesting. What did he? Do you remember anything about his lecture? Uh, just talking about the negative impacts it had on his life and the way the community viewed him mm-hmm. before and after. So I, yeah, I can't. Well, I mean, it was. Li- I mean, he was the. A prime suspect after someone mentioned that he was a quote unquote weird type of guy. Yeah. I mean, that was literally <laughs> the only evidence they had is he's a weird type of guy. And he lives next door. And I think they kind of, yeah. you know, made that stretch yeah. as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, could you and even this is, imagine? This is just another, this is another case of the police uh, trying to, force evidence to fit their narrative. Yeah. Right? So. Square peg in the round hole idea of. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Could you even imagine though, like you falsely got accused of a murder and then, you know, got out of jail and were exonerated, but people probably still thought you did it until, you know, 2019 or whenever it was when they actually were able to do this DNA profiling. Yeah. People, members of the public are, often not great at managing information and staying up to date on the most current information. So yeah, that his encounter with law enforcement ruined a significant portion of his life. Well, I mean, in your class, did people think that he could may still be the murderer? (laughs) (laughs) I I don't think uh, anybody would have, uh, would have said anything to that effect, but uh, this is also many years ago now that my undergraduate criminology class yeah. <laughs> uh, took place. I can't remember the details, but I think mostly the class was very sympathetic to him. So nobody raised their hand and said, but why did you do it? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that oh moment God, that would have been stood awful. out and been burned into my consciousness <laughs> and been like never talking to that person again. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's kind of a sad one, um, but interesting how how DNA was able to exonerate and then find a killer, um, and how advancements in DNA have really you know helped do that. Mm-hmm. And then I have one more. Uh, this one happened in Edmonton, um, and the title of this one is "Septic Tank Sam," which is really sad when I tell you the story. Um, But we now know his name. His name is Gordon Edwin Sanderson, and he's a First Nations man in Edmonton. Um, He was a victim of the 60s scoop. So uh, he was put into foster care when he was nine years old. He was, you know, scooped up to be put in residential schools and stuff like that. And so in the 1970s, he was living in Edmonton, and he planned to visit his brother in Calgary. Um, And then... Um, you know, he never went to Calgary. He just kind of disappeared. Uh, and then a body was found on an abandoned property in 1977. So seven years after he had planned to go visit his brother, uh, because the owners were sort of scavenging their property for a septic tank. They were looking around for a septic tank. Um, and so the body was, uh, rolled in a yellow bed sheet and tied with a nylon rope before it was dumped into the septic tank. Um, 
I'm not going to go into full details. Um, but when they found his body, they couldn't identify the man or his gender. Uh, so there was some mutilation that was involved there. So they couldn't identify anything about this man. Uh, and the bones and teeth sort of suggested that he had suffered some sort of unspecified illness when he was five years old. Uh, so they tried to create a 3D sketch from his skull structure. Um, and so he was known as Septic Tank Sam until DNA was submitted uh, to the company managing genealogical DNA. Uh, and he was identified in June of this year. Um, so his older sister's DNA was used to identify his body. Um, and so now with the discovery of his identity, police are now able to reopen this case of his murder. I don't know how far they'll get because I don't know how much DNA they were able to get from, you know, um, a body being found seven years after it was killed mm. uh, outside. So I doubt they have any evidence from a murderer. But um, I thought, you know, this is a sad story, obviously. Um, but I thought it was sort of nice to know that this man although he remained anonymous for so many years, were able to find out his identity and able to, you know, let his family know. So like that story that you told Kenny of the hitchhiker, able to tell the family like, hey, we found your brother. Um, and it's kind of, you know, it is it is a really sad story when we think about all of the, um, you know, missing Indigenous people, often missing Indigenous women, um, and and how you know, maybe now we can start to use DNA to to find out who these people are and be able to tell their stories. Mm. Yeah, and gives at least gives some people some closure, right? Mm -hmm. In terms of their their loved ones are just not missing and can never be found. Yeah, and we, you at least now have a little bit of closure of knowing. Okay, you know, I have the I have access to the remains, and they can kind of grieve. Uh, however they wish to grieve. Yeah. So I'm going to go out and do a DNA test so that if I ever get murdered, I'll be able to be identified. Mm -hmm. And yeah. Yeah. My, my DNA is already in a database. So I will be, I can be found. <laughs> <laughs> you decided to do a DNA test. Why did you decide to do a DNA test, Kenny? Um, to me, I, I mean, I'm a science geek, right? So I just find it fascinating. And uh, that's why I uh, um, got submitted my DNA sample. So I have a profile of myself, I can kind of see not only my ancestry, but, but also some uh, predictions from a health perspective, getting like health reports based on uh, my DNA. So to me, all that's just very interesting. Mm -hmm. Are you at all worried about how your your DNA information is going to be used if you rat out a family member for committing a murder? <laughs> Not really. <laughs> I don't see any issue. But I think it, it's interesting that, um, I mean, with genetic genealogy, uh, I just find it so interesting to see that not only can the past betray you, but you're the future can also betray you as well, which is basically like if you commit any crime, if you leave your DNA, you know, your ancestors in the past uh, based on genetic genealogy and any 
future human being that's being born and has submit their DNA into in the future can also betray you. <laughs> so uh, basically, uh, with this genealogy uh, profile, it's almost like you're never ever going to be able to get away with anything <laughs> if, if, if you leave your DNA. Like you will be found out. Uh, and do you think gone are the days of the serial killer, or do you think that might still be able to happen? I mean, if they don't leave a DNA sample, sure. Yeah, but how many times are you going to kill somebody hard. and leave, not leave behind a DNA sample? Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, I think maybe yeah. gone are the days of the careful, meticulous, calculating serial killer, but the the ones who aren't thinking it through and it's just how many murders they get through before you catch them, I think that'll still enable serial killing to continue. Can you guys guess the percentage of... Uh, DNA you would need in a database to be able to identify any anyone on the planet. Seventy two percent. I'm just okay. dredging up that number from before. Okay. That's a good number. You like that number, Sherry? Yeah. I'll go with so, seventy five, so, and we'll play the prices right. So who is closer? <laughs> you you only really need two percent of the population. Oh. To be able to identify anyone because of genetic genealogy, oh, like you, yeah. you, you need so few DNA samples, and based on that, you can build out any tree you want to be able to identify anyone. So you when can you build got, the tree. When you got your DNA tested, was that before a lot of people had? input their dna into the network or oh yeah i I did this when i was like i feel like maybe when i first graduated something like that so i mean this is long a long long time ago so Mm -hmm. well before anyone's talking about genetic genealogy or anything like that and i had no concern at all (laughs) (laughs) take my dna I don't think I would have any concern at all. If somebody in my family committed a murder, then they deserve to be found out, and I would hope I can help in that. Sure. Exactly. I'm I'm right with you yeah. guys on the on the criminal front, but there are some legitimate concerns to the way your genetic profile can be used against you. Uh, the most notable one is in terms of health insurance. If you have a family history of certain health disorders and then the insurance company uses that to hike your premiums up, then that's a misuse that can easily come out of your genetic profile being freely accessible by people who shouldn't be using it. I did read a small study um, that was made sort of in that regard. Um, And so they took um, uh, just like a a small sampling uh, and looked at the... um, health concerns that came out of the DNA testing. So what you were genetically um, predisposed to. Mm -hmm. Um, And there were a lot of false positives that were found within that testing. So I think it was maybe they tested it multiple times or something like that. I didn't fully read the the study, but um, yeah, they found that there's sometimes some uh, false positives that might happen. So if we went through uh, health insurance and said, here's my DNA, here's what I'm predisposed to. They might have a false positive on something and then hike up your premiums for that yeah, reason yeah. or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So they are not there. Yeah. Like that, that's obviously, you know, a little bit science fiction still, but <laughs> yeah. it, it's something well, to it's be possible. aware of, you know? <laughs> yeah. 
before you jump yeah. both feet in and say, yeah, give up the privacies. <laughs> it's funny. I So my wife and I are looking into uh, sperm donors to have children. And so we go on the sperm donor registry and let me look through all these profiles and stuff. And everyone has uh, a DNA sort of sequencing uh, that we can look at and we can see what they're genetically predisposed to. So we can kind of, I don't know, th- this feels almost science fiction-y of being able to like genetically choose <laughs> the right person yeah. for me. <laughs> Do you feel like it biases your perspective? Oh, yeah. When you're looking. Yeah. When I see that there's a lot of things that they're genetically predisposed to, I'm like, mm, maybe no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And there are certain things that white people, like as a, you know, white person, I am more likely to also have a matching predisposition. So uh, you wouldn't want to, you know, combine that DNA because then it's more likely the child will have, have that. But yeah. 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 This is the future. You're, you're self-selecting. <laughs> this is the future. We've got DNA in our lives now. We can just do whatever we want. Yeah. This is this is this is very Gattaca. <laughs> it is very Gattaca. <laughs> yeah. Well, don't do crimes, people. Don't do crimes. That's the lesson of today. Yep. And More upload of... your DNA. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you want to, if you want to find out about yourself i find it really interesting they're gonna see it but when i can afford it i will be getting a kit but it'll be a while before oh are they really expensive well it's a couple hundred dollars i think yeah i didn't know that's a bit prohibitive depends how much you you're really interested in it yeah (laughs) not everyone not everyone really cares about it right yeah i'm interested i just don't know if i'm two hundred dollars worth of interested (laughs) in it I am, but I just need to be able Phone to Phone upgrade. <laughs> you got to weigh your options here. Maybe like a couple okay. weeks of no groceries and then you can <laughs> get your DNA results. Listen, Rory, the human body can survive without food for quite a while. <laughs> oh, goodness. Well, that, that was a fun-ish topic for a while there and it got a little sad for a while, but it's it's very interesting. I think it's really interesting. I To me, like... You know, you mentioned septic tank, Sam. Like, I'm going to be following the case now. I feel like <laughs> I got. I want to read it. I want to follow the investigation because I feel like we got to catch the person. <laughs> it's very sad, very sad stuff. And I hope that we do catch them, but I'm not super hopeful in that case. But Okay. Well, thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll talk to you later. Bye. Till next time. <laughs>